Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day, and I'm joined this afternoon by Nick Wheeler, the founder of Charles Tirrett. Now a true pillar of the high street and perhaps the best-known shirt maker in Britain, Charles Tirrett began when Nick started flogging shirts by mail order at university. In the decades since, the brand's had monumental highs and a couple of pretty bad lows. In fact, Nick tells us in this episode how the brand very nearly went bust twice and also how he's learned just as much from these mistakes as he has from his successes. Recorded at the hub of Charles Tirrett Operations in London Bridge, in this episode, Nick tells us why he'll never ever sell the business, how the high street might be able to save itself and why he keeps a beard in the jam jar. Nick, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's my pleasure. We're sitting here in your lovely offices in London Bridge, the Cotton Centre. It's quite serendipitous that it's called the Cotton Centre. I thought when I was sent the address that it was your entire building, but it's not. <laughs> when we saw that it was the Cotton Centre, we thought we've got to take it, yeah. even though it's complete. The rent is absurdly high and <laughs> against my better judgment, but uh, here we are. Do you look around an office like this with all these people kind of working away for you? Do you, do you often think... I've come a long way. How on earth did I get here? Uh, it's a very good question, actually. I mean, in, a, in many ways, I do. It's sort of slightly worrying because at heart, I'm still, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. And I look back over that it's been 33 years now. And I look back and in a way, the happiest times were, you know, when, when I was in a sort of complete shithole in the middle of um, <laughs> Fulham and then Top End Elaborate Grove when it was just you know, hardly any of us. And we all knew each other very well. And it was very close and it was very exciting. And suddenly when you get here, you suddenly find, you know, we've got 1,300 people in the business. I don't know them all. Mm. And it just feels much more corporate. So it feels slightly against my, um, you know, it goes against the grain slightly. Yeah. And, and, and I do sort of wake up and think, what the hell am I doing here? I always feel like a bit of a fraud. I always think they think they, they, they don't realise I'm a complete idiot. But uh, anyway, there we go. <laughs> That's good. I think if you felt entitled, you might be a sociopath or something. I think all very, really successful very people should have imposter syndrome <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> Um, but let's go back right to the start when you when you really probably didn't know much, when you were a child and were you very entrepreneurial as a boy? I think for as long as I can remember, I always wanted to have my own business. I think my father was a closet entrepreneur. Okay. I think he would, have, he, he would have loved to have his own business too, but it was sort of at a time when people didn't start their own businesses. You know, it just didn't happen. And so he was a mechanical engineer and he went, ended up going into a, a mechanical engineering business and uh, you know, he made agricultural machinery and he, ended, he became MD. The guy before him was killed by a bull, actually, which was wow. a couple of days after he arrived. And they sort of said, well, you'll do. You'll become MD. And he, um, I remember I used to go and sit with him in the office and on Saturday mornings, and I'd, I'd go and open the post. And every time there was a check in the post, we'd sort of, both of us would do a little dance around the table. <laughs> it was just sort of incredibly exciting. That, okay. You know, what he did, he, he took sheet metal in at one end of the factory and he, he, he sort of bashed it into, a, you know, a hedge-cutting arm or, a, you know, mm. and it was, it was sort of magic. You know, you could take some metal you pay one price for, you do something to it and you sell it for more. And, and it was that magic thing that, you know, we both loved. And I always, I, I remember that quite clearly. And, and, and I, I'd always sort of do anything. I'd do anything. I was a bit grubby. I'd always do anything for a bit of money. He'd, he'd <laughs> make me sort of, you know, deadheading daffodils. Right. I think he paid me about 10p for a thousand daffodil heads. And I'd just spend my entire day picking But with inflation, that could be quite a good rate. Quite a lot. It's probably 28, 28p now. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and what were you like at school? You always had kind of side hustles as a teenager, didn't you? At school, I was a real hustler, yeah. I, I, I think it's quite important for your 
as a parent, not to give your child any money. Okay. And my father was very good at that. Did you have an allowance or were you completely on your own? I had an allowance, but it was always an allowance that was, it was small. It was always, it felt like it was smaller than everybody else. It probably wasn't, but it just, you know, you couldn't really do anything with it. What did you want to do at that age? Was it just tuck shop and... It was more, it was just sort of, it was probably going to London. I mean, I didn't have, I didn't really hustle until I got to secondary school. Yeah. So I think when I was about 13, I started this photography business. And uh, the boys who were leaving used to have this, we had this tradition where they would have their photo taken and they would stick it on a bit of card and they'd send it to all their mates. So they'd get 200 of these photos done and there were lots of sort of rather arty, photographic kind of kids wow. who, who'd go into the darkroom and would spend ages sort of developing and printing each photo in a load of developer stop and fix, which is all rather technical. <laughs> I worked out that there was a place in London that could do 200 of these photos for 6p each. And uh, I used to go up to London, get them all printed, and uh, I sort of cornered what was called the lever market. Okay. <laughs> and it was great. And I actually, you know, you made, I made quite a lot of money. You know, it gave me, you know, it meant I could go to London whenever I wanted, which was sort of the main object of the, yeah. uh, the main object of the exercise. And were you a good photographer? You took photos of rowing crews as well at one point. Yeah, there was a rowing, I had a rowing photography business. That was good. I'd go and sit on Hammersmith Bridge during these sort of head of the river races. Yeah. And you get 2,000 boats coming underneath and you take a picture of them each and then you'd send a proof to each school or college and they'd order prints. It was you know, very simple. I mean, not hard. You stick a tripod on and you put the camera on and you sort of click as they go past and uh, all these orders would come in. And, and, you know, they'd pay eight or ten quid for a photo and you, mm. I'd get them done for about 20p. And it was just magic. Yeah. Absolute magic. It just sort of... <laughs> it's the magic of entrepreneurialism. It's the magic of creating something out of nothing. Yeah. And there was Christmas trees as well at one point. Christmas trees I did a bit later on. I I, I needed uh, Christmas trees. I sort of decided that I wanted to be the best Christmas tree business in the world. (laughs) It's always good to start start, start with grand ideas and then work your way down. And so so I sort of looked at what was wrong with the Christmas tree market. And it was that hassle of getting it, going off and buying a tree and getting it home, stuck on the top of a car or... And then also getting rid of the tree after Christmas. So I thought, right, I'm going to offer you know, great quality trees that don't drop their leaves. And I'm going to dro- deliver them and I'm going to pick them up. So then I decided, uh, well, I found a guy in Shropshire who had a Christmas tree plantation. And he told me that the leaves would never drop off. So I bought loads from him and stuck them in. Uh, I, I, I Driving backwards on Forward Street, I had, had this going in Bristol and London. I had people who were selling them for me. And... Uh, the, a slight problem in that, in the, first of all, I found I had an, an allergy to Christmas trees, which was really oh, wow. quite bad. I so I get a terrible sort of rash. Well, they're incredibly prickly. I think it's after sort of dealing with hundreds of bloody trees, you just come out in a terrible rash. And, um, and these trees would drop their, they dropped their needles almost before I delivered them into the offices. So uh, when I turned up to pick them up at the end of, you know, on the 6th of January, I think people sort of just couldn't believe I had the cheek to turn up and pick up these sort of skeletal trees. And it was, uh, it was probably not the best Christmas tree business in the world. And uh, Was it just know, one Christmas? It didn't. I did it, I did it two Christmases, actually. I did it two Christmases. But it was, it's just, it, it was very, it's very hard work. Because the other thing I wanted, I always believe in, it's, it's about great quality, great value, great service. And the great value, I tried to undercut everybody. And actually, there's a reason why a really good Christmas tree is expensive. It's because it costs a lot of money to do. Hmm. And so I was just, you know, it was quite low margin, a lot of work. Um, I was paying people 
oh God, I, mean, I was paying people a pound a tree for when they were selling them, which was just outrageous. I don't know why people worked for me. <laughs> but um, it, was just, it was just hard work. And I thought, this yeah. is not going to work. I'm not going to be the best Christmas tree business in the world. Okay, good. So you got that out of your system. I sort of got it out of my system. I, after the first year, I remember going to my father and I said, this, is, this shows how stupid I am, actually. I said, look, Dad, you know, you're not going to... Because I think he always thought I was a bit of an idiot. Or I always felt he thought I was a bit of an idiot. And I said, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but you know, I've actually made you know, quite a lot of money on Christmas trees. I'm going to do this full time. And he sort of looked at me as if I was a complete fool. He said, Nick, Christmas trees, it's a seasonal business. Mm. I said, God, yes, you're absolutely right. So it is. And so uh, that, that sort of rather put me off. And I thought, yeah. well, this isn't going to work all year round. And then you thought, I'll make the best shirts in the world. Well, I had, I had shoes before that, actually. Okay. So I went and that didn't go so well, did it? Shoes was a nice idea. I, I went traveling when I left school and I, I had these shoes made. I'm a big believer in if you want to start a business, it's about you've got to start. A, I mean, I love product. So you've got to have a product that you love yourself, you know, that, that really interests you. Otherwise, mm. you're never going to be, you've got to be passionate about it. And I had these shoes made, handmade, made to measure shoes. But I suddenly realized they were just great quality. I made them in a little factory in northern India in Simla. And um, I was buying them, I bought them for 10 quid. And I got my first orders for 50 pairs of shoes. So I was buying 50 pairs of shoes at 10 quid, selling them for 50 quid. So it's going to make 2,000 quid. And uh, I faxed the measurements off to India on a fax machine. And fax machines have gone for good reason. They were bloody useless. And it was on that thermal paper that was a sort of long roll of paper that I didn't realise. But when the shoe went in at my end, a perfectly normal size 9, it was coming out the other end size 28. Or, you know, it's being stretched You'd or shrunk. You'd actually sketch their foot. Yeah, I'd sketch around the their foot. So would it have been easier just to ride a number? Well, it would, but, it, me- but it means you don't get, you, you know, you don't get the, full the full shape display. of the shoe. Right. So, so when you know when they cut when they cut the last, they they they, they you know the base of the shoe matches okay. your your foot. So it was just a it was a proper bespoke shoe. Wow! But it was um yeah the shoes came back and they were they were they were shoes for pixies and clowns. I mean it just it was an absolute disaster. So I thought, what can I do instead of shoes? Shoes, I'm not going to be the best shoe business in the world. And I thought, well, I'll do shirts. Okay, and that one worked. Shirts sort of worked. Shirts worked. Yeah, now here I am still doing shirts many years later. <laughs> and you were working at Bain. You had a, a full-time job, didn't you? Yeah, when I left school, I, I thought I want to go into a business full-time. I want to, you know, I want to run my own business. Mm. And I'd seen, you know, lots of people, lots of people always said they wanted to have their own business. And they, they tended to get sucked into the whole world of, of work and the world of being employed yeah. and suddenly earning a salary that meant they couldn't really... You know, say goodbye to it. You get sort of, you know, if you make a bit more money, you start spending more money, and before yeah. you know it, you can't get out of it. You're sort of married and two kids, and it's all sort of, it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> so when I left school, I, I said I didn't want to go to university. Everyone said go to university. I went to university, um, and when I left university, I thought right, I'm going to go into the business. I'm going to go into the shirt business full time. And everyone said, look, just go and get a proper job. Go and get a bit of experience. Which is a sort of, um, as an entrepreneur, I should have said no, but I sort of. I sort of fell for it, and I went to work for Bain for a couple of years, which was a good experience, actually. And it, and it meant I, I carried on running the business. Mm. I'm not sure whether Bain liked that, but I carried on running my little shirt business while I was at Bain for two years. And then at one point you decided, right, I'm going to strike out my own. Well, Bain had this thing where they, you, you, you basically go for two years, and at the end of two years, you, you, most people went on to business school. And, and everyone said, right, now go to business school. You know, it'd be a great experience to go to business school. But... When you go to business school, you tend to go, you rack up big debt. You know, it's, it's, it's expensive. Um, it's sort of modern day student loans, really. And then you, and then you get stuck. You know, you get, you get some bank comes along and says, we'll give you lots of money. And you get yeah. sucked, sucked into that thing I didn't want to get sucked into. What was it about that you didn't like? 
I just sort of thought if, you know, if I want to run my own business, I need to do it sooner rather than later. I, I think the great thing about starting when you're young is that you have no responsibilities. And it's a, um, you know, once you're, you go to business school, you come out of business school, you go into either consulting or banking, whatever people do when they come out of business school, they get given these ridiculously high salaries. So it wasn't about the money. You didn't want to be an entrepreneur to be I didn't Richard want to be, Branson or? No, no, I didn't. I wanted to, um, I just wanted to do my own thing. The thing I hated, I hated at school, my one claim to fame at school, which is a bit tragic, was that I, I got through my entire school career without calling anybody sir. Because wow. I had this sort of, a complete sort of disregard. I hated authority. I hated the idea that I had to call somebody sir. It sounds rather awful. I sound like an appalling child. So what did you, you know, say instead? Surely there were times when you had to say No, I, I yes, always sir. managed, I always managed to get around it. I mean, I literally, I mean, it just, it just sounds ridiculous, but I, I would always get around wow. it. I think you may be the only boy who's ever been to school anyway who's done that. That's quite incredible. But it was that thing of not wanting to be... I, I never liked being told what to do. And, and I think the great thing about being an entrepreneur is that you're completely in control of your own destiny. You know, yeah. If you wanted to stay in bed all day, you can stay in bed all day. If you want to go on holiday for six weeks, you can go on holiday for six weeks. I can't imagine you're the kind of person who does either of those things. Well, no, I think it's, it, it's not that... No, absolutely. I mean, I don't do, I mean, I don't do either of those things. But um, it, it's, having the, it's having the choice. It's nice having the choice. Yeah. And it's also nice just you know not having people telling you what to do. It, it, it's just a um, I don't know. It's a, it's a problem I've got, and I and I haven't really managed to get rid of that. <laughs> well, you don't need to. <laughs> um, so, what was the mail order business like back then? Was it just out of a, a brochure? Did you have a kind of physical book you sent out? Well, mail order. When I when I when I started it, I was in my second year at university. So I was uh, I had the fortune to do or the misfortune or whatever it is to to, to I did I did geography, which um, you probably don't know much about geography, but. Geography is not the most hard work okay. sort of course in the world. Um, I think we had, I think I had about, I don't know, sort of one essay a term and about four lectures a yeah. week. And that probably felt like a lot at the time. I think probably, yeah, it probably did feel quite a lot, but it, it still gave me a hell of a lot of free time. And, and I think one of the great things about university is it gives you, because I think actually whatever subjects you do, unless you do medicine or, mm. or engineering or something, whatever you do, you have a lot of free time. It's about what you make of that free time. And if you have a passion for something, it's just a great opportunity to really to go for that passion because you've got that umbrella of university, meaning that your parents aren't going to give you a hard time. Mm. You know, if I if I if I was doing my own business and sitting in sitting in a in a room sort of doing nothing, I'd have I'd have just had a little grief. But the fact I was at university doing a geography degree, it means I could get on with doing doing yeah. the shirt business. I don't know what I did in all that free time at university. Now I'm starting to wonder. I could have spent it better. Uh, but how did you fund it at the start? Did you have a kind of lump sum or did you... I started with eight shirts, eight shirt patterns. And I, I did mail order because I was, I was at university. So I couldn't really do anything else. Mail order was, was at the time quite sort of down and dirty. It was sort of quite, um, you know, the big book, sort of Littlewoods, Grattons. Yeah. Yeah. So, so people didn't sell good quality stuff by mail order. So it was quite a new thing. And what I did is, is I had 5,000 leaflets printed for 99 quid. So it sort of basically cost nothing. And I bought a little Amstrad PCW8152, I think it was called, <laughs> which had a little green screen, which was 199 quid. So basically I started with 300 quid. And um, I said, I'm going to start a shirt business. And I had a friend who was at Edinburgh University who said, where are you going to get the shirts from? And I said, God, that's a really good question. I haven't really... Hadn't really considered it. What would, any suggestions? And they said that they had a friend who, whose father made fabric in Lancashire. So I called him up and I said, "Can I buy fabric from you?" And he said, "You can't buy it from me, but I've got an agent." So I rang the agent and said, "Can I buy fabric from you?" And they said, "Come and see me." 
So I drove up, I had this little Morris Minor I got for 250 quid, turned up to see them, and just bought a few pieces of fabric. I mean, literally, just pieces of fabric, you know, like 100 quid's worth. And as I was leaving, I said, oh, and who makes the best shirts in the world? And they said, well, there's a factory down in Clacton. So I sort of went from Lancashire down to Clacton in Essex. And this guy said, will you make shirts for me? And he said, yeah, I'll make shirts for you. Yeah. So it was, I mean, a proper shoestring, proper shoestring. I think the first four years of the business, I turned over £12,000 a year. So I just didn't really need any money. You know, I'd sell a shirt. It would make me a little bit, a tiny little profit because there was no margin then. Um, but the, the important thing was that I was really learning about the business. And I think a lot of people, when they, when they start a business now, the first thing they do is they come up with the idea. The second thing they do is they think, where, where am I going to get the money? And I think it depends what sort of pro- what sort of business you're in. But you don't necessarily need money. If you're starting a shirt business, you don't really need money. Not if you're going to do it really small. You need money if you're, if you're going into something where you need first mover advantage, you know, a tech business. If mm. somebody's going to come along and steal your idea, if you don't massively ramp it up very quickly. But in the shirt, people have been starting shirt businesses for hundreds of years. Yeah. So it was sort of nothing new. So it was just very, very small. I didn't need any money. And, uh, and I did it for four years, turning over £12,000 a year. And why were people buying from you if, if you weren't really doing anything revolutionary? I think what I tried to do, I mean, it, it went back to what I learned on the, well, sort of tried to learn on the Christmas trees and the shoes and the photography. It was just, I was trying to offer great quality, great value for money and, and, and great service. So what I was doing is I, I, was, I was buying this fabric in Lancashire and making it at this shirt factory down in Clacton. And it was a shirt that cost me about 23 quid. Mm-hmm. Now, a normal retailer, you know, on German Street, the guy in Clacton, he was making shirts for Turnbull and Asser and, Hil- and, and, and um, not Hildegard and Key and Harvey and Hudson. You know, shirt makers have been around for 200 years, 150 years. And um, instead of selling them for 69, 70 quid, which is what they were selling them at, I sold them at 28 quid, which is only a ridiculous business model. But what it meant is that people were getting these incredible shirts for 28 quid. And it was just incredible quality, incredible value. And because it was, you know, me 24 hours a day, you know, if they rang up in the middle of the night, I'd answer the phone. Um, you know, if they ordered a shirt, I would do absolutely everything possible to get it out the same day because I wasn't doing very much. And, it, and it, was, it was quite easy. And I think, I think it sort of built on that sort of, you know, it was that reputation for quality value service that's just sort of made people come back and try it again. And it was just very, very slowly, slowly. And you still have your email address on every Charles Tirrett bag, don't you? I have my email address on every single Charles Tirrett bag. So yeah. they, they can still get in touch effectively? They can still get in touch. It's actually an email address. It, it, it slightly annoys me because I, I, I'm sort of, I, I'm split. I mean, we've got a lot of customers, you mm-hmm. know, we've got a few million customers. And the problem is that a lot of those emails will say things like, um, what time is your German street shop open? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I could get inundated by questions that I can't really, I'm not even the best person to answer. So they now go through a sort of a vetting process, okay. which I... Which on one on the one hand I really don't like because I love the whole direct thing. I love knowing what the customer. I, I think it's you know really important to we have a, a phrase here: be the customer. It, it, it's about you know really understanding what the customer thinks. And I think in the business here, thirteen hundred people, the, the people who know what the customers think more than anybody else are the people on the phones mm-hmm. and the people in the stores because they're the people who have direct contact with the yeah. customers. And the thing that drives me nuts is that there's a lot of other people in the business, whether they're in finance or buying or merchandising. You know, who, who sort of think they, they think they know what the customer thinks, but they don't spend any time with the customer. So, so what I try to do is, is stay very, very close. It's one of the things I, I, I've always tried to do as the business has grown, is to stay really close to the customer to know what they're really thinking. And, and how many emails do you think you get a day to that email address? 
to that email address, ones that come through to me. Actually, no, no, no. Actually, I'm surprisingly few. I I think it's one of those things where when people actually get a shirt, they they rip open the wrapper, they open the shirt and put it on, they chuck everything away. Yeah. So I I think a lot of people don't actually see, even see the email address. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people, especially British people, you know, British people don't like to complain. You've got to really encourage them to complain. They will just vote with their feet. If they don't like something, they disappear. Yeah. And And men as well, I suppose, maybe don't like to complain as much. Do you think that's true? I think men, men, it, it's not, men, men certainly don't like to complain. It's more, it's whether they don't like to, or they just, to be honest, they can't really be bothered. Right. You know, men are great voters, they are voters with their feet. If they don't like something, they just don't go back. And, and so we, we've sort of developed this thing now, which is more of a, um, it, it's a, it, it's basically, it, 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 it's online, it's online feedback. And, and it, it works better than, than having my email address on the shirts. So mm. when people buy from us, they get one of those, I and mean, I'm sure you've had them, the those form, dreadful yeah. forms. But the difference with this, you know, with, with, with FIFO, it, it, which is the company we use, which, which, which used, to be, used to be my company, actually. But, um, it, uh, you know, when, when people give their feedback, it goes live on our homepage straight away. So you can read, you know, it's completely unedited. No, we have no right of edit. We can reply. And every morning I get a report which says everything, every single bad thing that somebody said, whether it's UK, US, Germany, I don't speak German, so that doesn't make much sense, or retail, I get this report and I can see what every single person saying bad about the company. What are the worst things you ever heard, the things that disappointed you most? Um, I hate it when people say the quality is no good. Right. Which is a difficult one because, you know, Every man is different, and and some men have skin like a rhino, mm-hmm. and some men have skin that's so sensitive they just you know anything will bring them out in a rash, and so you get people who complain that our shirts are too thin, too light. You get people who complain that our shirts are too heavy, and you get people who complain that our shirts crease, and you get people who complain that our shirts don't crease enough. You know they look sort of you know we do a lot of non iron non iron shirts, and they do, people like shirts that crease, do they? They want. Well, people like shirts, and, and we, I mean, we, we, we sell a lot of non-iron shirts, yeah. about 70% of our shirts are non-iron now. And um, non-iron is, is, it's 100% cotton, but it's, it, the fabric is treated, and it slightly changes the way the fabric feels, very slightly changes. And uh, some people can notice that, and some people can't. And the people who don't like the way that feels, they like a shirt to look more natural. Some okay. people, they, so they do, they, I mean, they like it to be slightly creased. <laughs> Because in the old days, you know, a shirt that did, didn't look creased was, you know, a 100% polyester shirt. You know, you pull it out of the washing machine, you put it on, you smell pretty awful at the end of the day. But mm. apart from that, you know, it just doesn't crease. And I think men sort of react against that. You know, <laughs> some people, men see a, a shirt that doesn't crease being a cheap shirt. Okay. You know, a German street shirt is, a, is a, a shirt made out of beautiful cotton and beautiful cotton creases. And then the internet came along, I suppose, halfway through your, your kind of journey. Was that a help or a hindrance? The internet came along. I mean, when the internet arrived, I just thought, this is just manna from heaven. You know, I am the okay. luckiest guy alive. You know, because I had a... I, I was operating in a, in a mail-order world where mail-order was a bit of a down-market, sort of down-market-type mm. business. And suddenly the internet came along and made mail-order quite sexy. You know, it was sort of the new way to shop. And I remember when it first first started, you know, dial-up modems, incredibly slow. And everyone said, this is just never going to work, you know. People are just never going to shop online. It just takes far too long. It's so clunky. Uh, it's not going to work. And and that was, um, I just knew. I knew from the beginning that would transform the business. And uh, I think we now do about 70% of the business online. Most of the rest of it is in, in th- through the stores. But it just makes, basically, it just brought mail order into the modern world. Um, 
we launched our website in 1998, which was early for websites. Mm. And it was incredibly clunky, and it was a bit of a disaster. And we tried to do all sorts of clever things, like we had 3D modeling, which was just a joke on a dial-up, wow. dial-up modem. What a kind of rotating yeah, we had a shirt. Yeah, it was ridiculous. We, 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 wow. we, we had a tie-up with a, with a company called EDS, which is Electronic Data Systems, which is a massive American software company. They spent over a million dollars developing this, oh this, this tool. Because they were, everyone was sort of they thinking... Think- why? Because people wanted to see a physical shirt, but they couldn't. Well, it, well, it was it was a classic case, and this often happens. It's a classic case of you know the te- the technology arrives, and people think let's use the technology rather than thinking what does the customer want. So we had this. Yeah, you 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 had a, a you could see your shirt in three D. You could twist it round, and you could see the back of it, and. It, it was just a disaster because, you know, men know what a shirt looks like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't need to see a shirt in 3D. It was a classic sort of case of the techies sort mm. of winning the battle against the product mm. marketeers. And it was just a disaster, I mean, a complete waste of money. And, Did it and, slow down the entire website, I presume? Oh, I mean, the website was appallingly slow. Yeah, <laughs> endless complaints about the website. Are there still people who were using it as a mail order service right when you started who still today use it via phone or... Yeah, no, we still have we still have orders coming in on the phone. Uh, we still have orders coming in on the post. Actually, I mean, very wow. few now. That's quite. I am quite lovely about that. Them sending off a. It's great. It's great. It's it's a sort. Of, I mean, typically, it's the older customer. Yeah. Older customers prefer. You know, they like to do things by post, and they send checks, and uh, you know that's the way they've always done it, and that's the way they want to do it. And I, and I think it's, you know, from our point of view, I'm not going to sit here and say you have to do it. To, I'm not going to say to the customer you have to do it this way or that way. I want them to do it in the way they want to do it. Of course. And we'll work around that. And are there still customers who have been with you for more than 30 years, do you think? Yeah, no, we've got, we got um, I've got a little black book, which was, you know, when I first started, everything was sort of went into this notebook. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I still got customers then. Yeah, still got customers now who are still, still ordering. They, they, they were young then and they're getting a bit older now. <laughs> do they get special rewards? They must get some kind of birthday card. Actually, the, the awful post. thing is, we do send birthday offers, but we don't really send them. We don't send those people special rewards. We should do. That's a good idea. I'm going to have to change that. <laughs> okay, good. There have been struggles along the way, we've spoken about before, um, one of which was when you decided to go kind of on the acquisition trail and you bought Patricia Wiggum, which was a children's clothes maker, or was it just a children's toy shop? Um, Patricia Wiggum was a children's clothes shop. Clothes shop. It, it, it was a chain of children's clothes shops. There were five Patricia, Patricia Wiggum stores. Um, and it was a classic case. I, I, I think it's a problem that... I always say entrepreneurs are split into two two types of entrepreneur. You've got the um, you've got the hare and you've got the tortoise. And increasingly today, most entrepreneurs are hares. You know, they have their idea. The first thing they go out and raise a load of money. They give away all their equity and they just try and build, 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 grow it really fast to sell. And then I think you've got the tortoise, who is the person who just you know builds it over the long term, and they generally hold on to the equity and they're doing it many many years later. Which are you a tortoise or a hare then? I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a tortoise. Of course. And, and, and I think that the problem with being a tortoise is that there is the capacity to... Getting bored is probably the wrong, the wrong word mm. because I think, it's, it's, I think it's the most dangerous thing that, a, that an entrepreneur can do is to, become, is to get bored. But, but effectively what happened with Patricia Wigan is that we'd built the business, the business was doing, you know, we had no outside finance, and the business was doing two and a half million pounds a year and it was making a quarter of a million quid profit. And, you know, I just got to that point where, you know, my friends who'd gone off to become, you know, gone off into the city, which is what people did then, don't do it anymore. 
And they were sort of, uh, you know, they were making decent sales. They were suddenly sort of saying, oh, wow, you know, actually, you know, the shirt business looked like it, looked, it looks like it actually might work. And they were all rather shocked and surprised. <laughs> but you suddenly get, I suddenly felt this is easy. And you think, right, what else can I do? And, and it was, I think, the time when, when Lord Hanson and Lord White were going around the world doing acquisitions. And I thought, if they can do acquisitions, I can do acquisitions. And it was just a stupid acquisition. You know, if you do an acquisition, acquisitions generally are often end up being a disaster. But I did an acquisition into a chain of children's clothes shops when I was a mail-order men's shirt mm. company. And so, you know, my existing customer base were not interested in buying children's clothes. I didn't know anything about retail. And I lost more money in three months than I made in the last three years. So, uh, and went bust. <laughs> so that was a real lesson mm. in, in what not to do. And, and, and I think when I look back, I, you know, I've made loads of mistakes. But the mistake that I think you really don't want to make is you don't want to lose focus. You've got to decide what you want to do and what you're good at, and you want to be, you want to be the best in the world. Mm. And, and you just want to get on and do that. And I think when people start trying to do lots of different things, that's when people tend to fall over. What about someone like Richard Branson? I guess he's the case of someone who does a hundred different things with Virgin and some of them work, some of them fail, but he's always got a new idea up his sleeve. Is he just a freak or one of a kind? Um, he's definitely a freak yeah. um, because very, very few people have done that. You know, Stelios tried to do that with Easy, yeah. Easy Jet and Easy Everything Else. And it, it, it obviously hasn't worked in the same way that Virgin has become a proper global brand. I think what Richard Branson has done is, is fantastic. God, you know, he's had his ups and downs and there have been times when he's really been, been uh, yeah. right on the edge. Um, but he has been, you know, what he's done incredibly well is he's, he's gone out and he's found great people and he's given them complete autonomy to run the business. And uh, it's been a fantastic success. But very rare. I'm definitely a freak. Very few people do that. Did you think about quitting when you, were, when you went bankrupt then? Did you think about doing something else entirely? I think when the receiver walked in, I just had an absolute... I couldn't believe it. You know, I'd, I, effectively, I'd been, doing this, I'd been doing the business then for well, four years full-time. And I'd been doing it four years, two years at Bain and two years at, at university. And, and I think it was, um, you know, I was 29. And when you're 29, you feel like, you feel like you're getting old. <laughs> You know, I felt like I felt like I'd had my life almost. You know, this 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 was it. I and I was just a sort of sh complete shock. And I I the awful thing is, I mean, I burst into floods of tears. That was a bit tragic for for about two hours. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And uh, and then I thought, this is ridiculous. This is a great business. You know, I'm going to I'm going to get it back, and uh, I'm going to cre create what it deserves to be. It deserves to be a great business. So how did you turn it around? How did you claw back trust, and how did you raise money again, essentially? Well, that's a good question, and, and, and I often talk about luck, and one of the really lucky things I had is that the business wasn't worth very much at that point because it had gone into receivership, so anybody outside the business didn't really know. They didn't know what the potential for the business was. There weren't really many buyers. Mm. And so the business was going to be sold, for, I think it was sold in the end for about £240,000. So quite a lot. I mean, a lot if you didn't have anything, and at the time I didn't have anything. And... Where, where I was lucky is that my father basically mortgaged his house wow. and lent me the £240,000, which showed great... I mean, I will be eternally indebted to him for that because, I mean, God knows, I have no idea where I'd be if that hadn't happened. He charged me quite a lot of interest, which was perfectly fair enough. <laughs> um, but I think uh, that, that that's, you know, that, that's lucky. I mean, you know, I mean, the fact he, he took that leap of faith... Um, we actually, I mean, I paid him off in about four months. Oh, wow. you know, so the business was, the business, it was a good little business. And off we went again.
And it was kind of uphill all the way from there, I suppose, with one little wobble later down the line again. We had another wobble 11 years later. And, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was classic. I mean, it was a... Um, I always say to people, I think one of the really important things in a business is having a business where people are not afraid of failure. You know, people need to make mistakes to understand what works and what doesn't work. You know, if you're not pushing the boundary and doing new things, then the business becomes very stale. And so I always say to people, look, it's fine to make the mistake, but just don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah. And, and so then, you know, 11 years later, I, I made the same mistake twice. <laughs> so I now have to say to people, look, it's fine to make the same mistake, just you can make it twice, but don't make it a third time. Because, you know, 11 years later, the business was now doing 40 million pounds sales, we're making 4 million pounds profit, great business. And uh, it got to the point where I thought, I'm not the right person to run this business anymore. And I brought in a chief exec who came from Ralph Lauren. And together, we agreed to try and effectively turn the business into Ralph Lauren. And we launched women's and children's clothes again. Mm. I mean, just crazy. I mean, embarrassing now to look back on it. <laughs> and, um, you know, once again, I found out that my male customers who bought shirts from me did not want to buy women's or children's clothes, or not many of them did. And um, very nearly went bust again. You know, we ended up with £9 million worth of stock we couldn't sell. Wow. And uh, the bank breathing down our necks big time. Um, so it was a very... How did you get out of that one? Basically, the poor chap from Ralph Lauren had to leave. And I came back into the business. I, and, and I took it back to... We had a real problem. I mean, the, the right thing to do would be to have written off the stock, just to sort of got rid of it. But we couldn't do that because, you know... You know, the bank would have foreclosed. We had, mm. we, had a, we had an overdraft with them. We just couldn't do it. So we had to trade out of that stock. And it was just a very, very painful two years where, you know, we, we, we didn't grow for two or three years. actually didn't grow at all on the top line and just traded through that stock and got the business back on the straight and narrow, back focused on, 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 on shirts and, 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 and menswear. Okay. So no women's wear plans on the horizon, no children's wear. Um, no women's wear, no children's wear. <laughs> if, you, if you pitch the idea to do that to your... To your board now, what do you think they'd say? <laughs> I think I've told them so many times. I, I've told them that story so many times that I think they think I'd gone absolutely stark raving mad. I think one of the things, it, it goes back to one of the reasons why, you know, not, not liking to be told what to do. And one of the reasons I've never had outside equity into the business is that I know that if other shareholders come in, they'll, they'll have views. Yeah. And, uh, and they'll try telling me what to do. And, and so, um, you know, I've, I, I've, 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 I've always avoided that. But it, it, it means that, you know, it, it's important to have, you know, we have a very open, it's not to say that I'm always right. I know I'm not always right. I know I'm often wrong. But I think the board would, uh, they would tell me in no uncertain terms if I went into women's and children's wear that it was probably not the right thing to do. Okay. What percentage of the time do you think you're right? Do you think you're right 75% of the time, 51 um, it's a really good, it's a really good question, actually. I mean, I think I am right. I think I'm right quite a lot. Okay, nine out of ten. It's difficult. No, probably not nine out of ten. Probably, but certainly sort of. I, I, I'd say probably eight out of ten. Okay, we'll ask um, your staff. What that I think. Means. I think that would be a really good, a really That's good a idea good to ask to ask them. Yeah. Because the other thing is, it, it goes back to when you have, you know, I don't run the business. I have a chief exec in the business. And when you have a chief exec in the business, one of the really important things, I'm sure Richard Brownson would say this as well, is you don't tell the chief exec what to do. Mm. Only one person can run the business. And, and, it's, and you, can give them, um, you can give them ideas and you can make suggestions, but, but they, they are completely within their right to, to, to kick back and say, no, we're not going to do that. And they do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's the same analogy. It's a bit, I mean, I always say Charles Stewart is like my fifth child. You know, I've got four other children. This is like my fifth child. It is my oldest child. It's, it's 33 years old, whatever it is. 
And it's, um, you know, with a 33-year-old child, you don't tell it what to do. Mm. You know, you could, as a parent, you can give it advice and it, it'll often ignore it and, and sometimes take it on board and change it. And it's exactly the same in a business. And I, and I think that's very important because, you know, when you've got, you know, the, the, the business has changed from those days and it was just, you know, six of us in a little room. And, and I'm not the right, you know, I'm not the right person to run this business. So I'll come up with ideas, which I think are right. And, and, and when they're wrong, it's usually because I've sort of misjudged the... Uh, I suppose the depth of knowledge in the business, mm. you know, the, it's one of the most exciting things about the business as well is, is you know, because, you know, what I used to do, I used to do everything. I did the finance and the marketing and the merchandising and the dispatch and answered the phones. You know, I did everything. And, and walking around the business now, when I see people doing what I used to do, it, it, it's one of the really exciting things is they are all so much better than I ever was. They're so much better at doing what they do than I was. And that is, that's great. It, it, it's a sort of, it's a, I think it's one of the great things about her, about holding on to a business and watching it grow and, and watching it develop. Yeah, there's that phrase about being the smartest person in the room or not being the smartest person in the room. You want to hire people who are much yeah. better than you. Yeah. What do you look for when you're interviewing people or hiring people? or Who's the kind of person that fits in on this floor here in Charles Sturrett? Um I want people who... I I think I when, I... when I say... People say you must get a bit bored, you know, 33 years getting out of bed every morning thinking, how am I going to sell another shirt or two? But it's not really about that. What I say to people is I want, you know, I want Charles Tirrett to be a great business. And um, they then say, what do you mean by great business? A bit wishy-washy. And, and by great business, I mean a business where the people who work here love Charles Tirrett, the, the customers love Charles Tirrett, and the suppliers love Charles Tirrett. So what I look for people when, when, when they come to work here, I want people who are really going to love working at Charles Tirrett. I, I, I want them to have, and I want people to have fun working at Charles Tirrett. I, I think it's a sort of, um, I haven't had many jobs. I worked at Harrods for a bit. And I remember going into Harrods, when you, when you work at Harrods, you have to go in through the staff entrance, mm -hmm. which in itself used to really annoy me because I felt like I was being, you know, I was being told what to do. Yeah. And you'd watch people walking down the street in what I call normal happy mode. And they'd go down the steps under the street and walk up into Harrods in what I call work mode. Mm. And it's that so they'd be completely different people at, at work and at, and at, and at home. They, they'd sort of be going to work to make some money to go and have a nice time at home. And I want people who are going to come here and, and are going to love working in the business as much as they're going to love being at home. Yeah. And it's people who have sort of enthusiasm and drive and want to make a difference and create something. Are they allowed to wear other people's shirts to work? They can basically wear whatever they like to work, actually. I suspect most of them do wear Charles I think, I think the most, of them, most of the men wear Charles Tirrett shirts, but I think it's really interesting. You know, if they, if they wear, you know, I mean, there are certain product categories we do where they don't wear Charles Tirrett. And it's, it's really interesting to understand why they don't wear Charles Tirrett, because, you know, they get Charles Tirrett at a damn good price. Yeah. And they're, they're doing it because they prefer other people's product. And, 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 and quite a lot of the product, product inspiration comes from people in the business saying, look, you know, something like underwear. You know, people wear, I don't know, Calvin Klein or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, why do they wear Calvin Klein? Why do they wear Because we do a sort of similar thing to Calvin Klein, but it's, sort of just, it's just not as good. And we need to, you know, working on that and making it better and making it better than Calvin Klein is, is a sort of, it's a great challenge to have. Yeah. And you still own 95% of the business, as you say. Will there come a day when you decide to sell it? What would make you want to sell it? Well, I always say to people, look, if you can give me one good reason for selling the business, then I'm all ears. Okay. Um, but nobody's managed to give me a good reason. Have they tried? People have tried. Do you want to have a go? I don't know. I mean, money is the <laughs> obvious one, but it doesn't seem to matter so much. Money is the obvious one, but money is sort of... Um, I mean, it's just... It's funny money, because when you haven't got any money, you know, certainly in the early years, it, it's sort of... 
it was always nice. The idea of having a bit of money just to sort of make life a bit easier mm. was a really attractive prospect. You know, it, it, you know, life in London is pretty tough when you haven't got any money. You, you just can't do anything. But you get to, and I, and I think lots of people have done lots of work on this, you get to a certain level, and that level is not particularly high, and I can't quite remember what it is. Once you get to that certain level where you can, you know, life is about having a nice time with family and friends mm. outside of work, and it's about having a great job. And once you get to that level, it, it, having extra money is just completely unimportant. Some people, I suppose, want to have a, you know, own a jumbo jet and a, and a, and a QE2 and, and sort of go all out. But I just, I just don't like that. No. And so it's a, um, you know, I've got everything, everything I want, you know, and, and actually I've got more than I want. I don't, I, I, I actually hate stuff. Okay. I've got too much stuff. <laughs> so I'm trying to get rid of stuff rather than getting more stuff. So it's not the money. It's about creating. I just want to create a great business. I want to have the best shirt business in the world. Yeah. And of course, you, you live with Chrissy, well, you're married to Chrissy Racco from The White Company, who's yeah. your wife, and you're two very successful entrepreneurs. What's it like at home? Are you both headstrong? Are you both stubborn? Is it a very creative household? Well, I think we probably have different skills as far as, an, in, from an entrepreneurial point of view. And in a way, you know, Chris, I mean, The White Company, Chris is just fantastic at product. You know, she's a real perfectionist, and, you know, her attention to detail and her knowledge of what the customer wants from their product is just fantastic. Mine is more sort of general business skills. And so we're, we're, we're different, which is good. So we don't really, we don't clash no. um, at all. Um, and we're not really, I mean, I just, you know, I, to be honest, I find the story of the White Company, I just absolutely love. You know, I, I've always been a big believer. I, you know, I love entrepreneurs anyway. The fact she's an entrepreneur is great. And I love the fact that, you know, she, she left school with six O-levels, I think. You know, didn't, didn't do A-levels. And she just, you know, followed that dream. She just did what she thought was right. And, and she proved that you can build it. You know, she's never had any outside investment mm. either. She owns 100% of the business. And you can build a fantastic business just by, you know, one step at a time. And it, it's just a sort of a lovely story. And I, I think it's a... Um, you know, when I walk into their store, I think their stores are just fantastic. Yeah. And I think their brand is fantastic. And it's, you know, people always think there's a huge amount of competition going on between us, which um, there isn't really. Yeah. Although I'm quite a competitive person generally, <laughs> but at least, you know, at least I'm married. Yeah. Him, I suppose married. there aren't that many um, entrepreneurial couples, couples who are both very, very successful in their own right. There are Maybe very that's... few that have are in separate businesses. Yeah, I mean, not many in the same business actually, but but very few in separate businesses. Um, so it is quite it is quite rare. I I think it's a um, we're both quite easygoing, which I think is quite important. Mm. And we both I think have it's just our outlook on life is is similar. It's about what you want. If if, if you both want the same thing, then then I think it, it 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 works it works very well. And what about your kids? You said the worst thing you can do for your kids is give them money. They must know that you have money and you Yeah, they successful. do know. They do know we have money, but they do know that they don't get any money from us. Okay. <laughs> and I think it's a it it is a difficult one. I mean I I think it's 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 a hard one, but I I mean Tom who's the eldest, I remember when he was he was about 14, 15, and he came, and he came to me and he said he wanted an iPad. Um, and I said, look, Tom, if you want an iPad, go out and, you know, cut the heads off daffodils or something. You know, that's what I did. Go and do a newspaper round. You know, yeah. I think I'm still sort of slightly living in the 70s. <laughs> Just go and, go and make some money. And so he said, all right, well, I'm going to go and write an app. And I said, oh, crikey. 
okay, all right, go and write an app, knowing that he you know, has no knowledge of app writing at all. Okay. Anyway, about two weeks later, he came back and he said, I've written this app and I've gone to Apple and I've signed up and I've lied about my age because I had to be 18, but I've <laughs> registered it for the App Store. I said, oh, crikey. Okay, well, that's good. Thinking, right, that'll be the end of it. And it, it got accepted by Apple. And the, the next morning he came down and he'd sold something like 300 versions of this app. At, I think it was a 79p at the wow. time, of which he got 59p. So he'd made 150 what was quid. What did he do? It was a role-play game. I don't okay. know if you know what a role-play game is. Yeah, well... Thank but it was a thing called Stick Life, which was... I mean, it was a very basic game about... You, know, had, to, you had to go through life. So you started with nothing, and you'd walk around... You'd go around this sort of course, and you'd... You could go and do a bit of work. You make a bit of money. You could go and get a bit of education. And then when you got a bit of money, you go and get a job. It was sort of a bit of a. It was quite yeah. interesting. And then there was a drug dealer, which I was slightly shocked by. Okay. Sort of, if you could, you could buy drugs with the money if you wanted, or you could not. And it's a kind of a hyper realistic stickman game. It was. It was. A, it was a hyper realistic stickman <laughs> game. Yeah. And um, and he ended up. He and, and literally. I mean, the, you know, the first day he made one hundred fifty quid. The second day he made about nine hundred quid. Wow. And it just went. And then he, overall, he made about forty grand, which aged fourteen or fifteen was. was that's just phenomenal. A, I mean, it was just phenomenal. He's much better than you, then. Oh, he's much better than me. <laughs> much better than so me. So what's he doing now? Well, he's always wanted to make films. Okay. So he wants to, movies. Wow. And um, so he is, uh, he's his last year at university. And did he buy himself an iPad for that? He did buy himself an iPad. He bought himself an iPad. He bought himself a massive, great big sort of camera and all the kit okay. and, you know, edited and made and uh, and made movies. Well, he'll go very far if that's anything to go He by. also ended up taking, he used to get taxis from school to up to Wickham, to a local girls' school there, and he'd take all these girls out <laughs> shopping, which I, I think the money went quite quickly. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure it did. Um, and it's interesting you say about Chrissy's shops and the, the quality of the White Company stores, and obviously you've got lots of stores, but when I walk down, I grew up in Oxford, when you walk down the high street there, Corn Market Street, it's not like it was even five years ago. It's kind of derelict charity shops, yeah. empty plots, and yeah. just kind of tapped shops, really. Yeah. They sell nothing. Yeah. What do you think we can do? Do you think it's completely dead and gone, the, the British High Street? Um, I think the High Street needs to... Oh gosh, I mean, so much has been written about this, and trying to add anything new is, is almost impossible. I mean, Oxford is a great example, because we've got a shop in the new Westgate Centre. Yeah. And the new Westgate Centre, you know, it, it's obviously been in the planning for years and years and years, so way before the sort of retail malaise. And what Westgate did, they, they opened, they, they pulled a lot of the shops out of the high street mm. who went into Westgate. And you then had, so the high street, that high street died in Oxford big time, yeah. as, uh, as you said, and Westgate ended up splitting the traffic. And the problem with Oxford, Oxford is very anti-car, always has been for about 45 years, you know, their park and ride system, which has yeah. never really worked. Yeah. And it's very car unfriendly. So it's just, it, it doesn't have the footfall and the traffic to support a high street and a shopping centre like that. So it's been diluted both, and, and both as a result of not being successful. So I think it's, um, the high street needs to create more experience, experience, experiential, you know. Yeah. Like the Apple Store on Regent Street. I mean, that's a, a huge example. But like you go the Apple there Store on Regent like Street. A, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but just like, you know, and, and it's more, you know, people, people don't want, you know, people don't want stuff anymore. Mm. Yeah, yeah, millennials don't want stuff. You know, they want experiences. Where, so whether it's going in and having, you know, it, it could be massages and, and that, that's why, you know, a lot of, you know, nail bars and, and just sort of treatments and special sort of me time places. And companies that are starting sort of, you know, escape rooms and where you go and be entertained. You yeah. can go with your friends to the high street, you go to escape room or you go to a... 
you know, go and do. You can go and do interactive games. You can go and do. It, it, it's 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 something. It's it's a, it's a, you know entertainment. Yeah. You know, shopping used to be entertainment. People used to go shopping because it was a sort of a fun thing to do. And I think retailers became a bit a bit lazy, and they tended, you know, it, it morphed from being real personal shops where the people owned the shop and were friendly and really looked after you, to the big chains came along, put the little guys out of business. And then the big chains went started sort of cutting costs. You know, if you go into a next or an M and S now, mm. you know, you try and buy. You go and try and buy. I mean, I'm in the men's shirt business, but you go and try and buy men's shirt in there, and it's just really quite difficult. Yeah, you've got a huge space. Nobody, nobody seems to work there. There's a couple of people on the till. You can't get any help. It's it's just sort of boring. It's just not interesting. Yeah. It's not fun. And so the you know the fun has gone out of the high street, and the fun you know, we need to bring the fun back. And it's um, you know, it's it, it, it it's not that easy because. You know, the danger is, is that young people, instead of getting out and, and, you know, going shopping and meeting friends, they're sort of sitting at home, sitting on computers, living in a sort of virtual world. Yeah. And it's quite dangerous. Do you think we'll see a Charles Tirrett nail bar? Charles Tirrett escape rooms? It's hard to combine the brand. <laughs> but I think we'll see... Um, I like to think we'll see more, more theatre in Charles Tirrett shops. Okay. You know, having... You know the tailor sitting in the shop. You know we've got a, a yeah. we've got, we actually got the tailor sitting in in, what, in, in, in German Street, cutting oh. in front of you, wow. um, and altering everything that you want there and then, doing um, personalization there and then. We've got, you know, just shoe cleaners, you know, yeah. in 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 the store. It, it's just things going on in the store that's not. You're not just trying to sell the customer a product because they're just a bit beyond that. They can mm. get that online. Of course. You know you need to give them things that they can't get online. And it's about not sitting back and waiting for the customer to come in, but making you know giving the customer a really good reason yeah. to come in. And and, and it's, it, you know, it's difficult. Do you see lots of places now that have kind of coffee machines and little baristas and things like that, and yeah. even barbers, yeah. barber chairs yeah. in kind yeah, of yeah, men's I mean, yeah, barbers is. I mean, that's something we considered. You know, we we we've considered in our shops. I mean, yeah. our shops tend to be quite small, so yeah. we've, got, we've, we've got a problem with that. But but that's a, a classic example. You know, you can't get your hair cut online. That's no, just never going to happen. Um, but it's fun if you have a proper, you know, good old-fashioned barber. It's just quite good fun. Right, before we go, I'd like to ask you the kind of quick-fire questions which we ask everyone. So they're about you, not, not about Nick, the businessman. Um, but who in the world of business do you most admire? Um, Elon Musk, I think. But a lot of people say that. Is it just because oh, he doesn't God, seem that- to care? No, I think it's, there's, there's truth in it then. Because he doesn't care at all, or because the he's... thing I love about Elon Musk is that he no, I think he, no, he does care. But what he cares about, he he looks. I mean, it sounds rather awful, but he but he cares about, you know, the future of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's an entrepreneur of real conviction. You know, I think his his push into you know whether it's electric cars or whether it's creating life on Mars, it's just sort of it, it's thinking up the the impossible, mm-hmm. and and just going for it. And, and at the time, you know, the idea of creating life on Mars is just, it's just absurd. I mean, it's proper. I mean, it is literally science fiction. But it's almost, you know, now it, it's not as impossible as it was. And, and I think he genuinely, he's a great example. You know, I love entrepreneurs who have real conviction and who, um, you know, literally, well, who, who shoot for the stars, you know, who just go for, outra- have, they have outrageous goals. Yeah. And I think he does that. He does that in a way that virtually no other entrepreneur has. You know, Richard Branson's great, but Richard Branson does, you know, looks at, you know, he thinks the trains aren't very good, so he makes the trains better. He thinks banking's not very good, he makes banking better. He thinks mobile phones aren't very good, he makes mobile phones better. He's actually going for Virgin Galactic as well, so he is sort of going for the stars <laughs> now. But, but 
it, it, it's 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 the people who just really think out of the box and yeah. and and just have really big grand and 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 put everything everything behind it you know elon musk could go bust tomorrow mm. but he believes he really believes in what he's doing does it ever make you want to do something yeah, it completely does. off the wall yeah it does i i i slightly think hang on a minute i'm you know, I think it's nice to make a, it's. I think a lot of entrepreneurs want to make a. They want to make a difference, and the world has. The world has lots of problems, <laughs> and you sort of want to make the world. You know, you want to make the world a better place. I mean, that sounds. It just sounds so crass. I can't believe I'm saying it, <laughs> but I sometimes think you know, selling a great quality shirt at good value is not really. I mean, it's. You know what 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 we say we're doing. You know, like when you know, if you walked into a NASA in the nineteen sixties and you walked up to the person at reception and you say, "What are you doing?" They say, "I'm putting a man on the moon." Yeah. I, I hope if you walked up to people here they, and you said, "What are they doing?" Whether they're, you know, in a store, in on the phones, in in the warehouse, they they say, "I'm making it easy for men to dress well." And I think it's making what we try to do is make men feel good about themselves. You know, they can you know because a lot of men don't they don't they're not really interested in how they dress or or what they wear. But they know that if they put something on, it makes them feel good. I, I, I quite like that. Yeah. But it's not, um, it's not saving the planet. And, and, I, and I do sometimes think that I should be doing a little bit more. So should we look out for something like that? A kind of... I think Turret Galactica. Okay. Could be the next thing. Uh, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing this? If, if, say, all those years ago, you had gone bust and hadn't managed to go back, what do you think you'd be up to now? I would, be, I would, I would have my own business. In still in menswear, in it wouldn't necessarily be in menswear. It would be in. I mean, often I think, why? Why did I do menswear? You know, it, it's. Um, you know, I look at almost my twin, um, Michael Dell, who was born nineteen sixty four, fourth of February. Mm. So sort of just under a year before me, uh, started his business two years before me, nineteen eighty four. Okay, and he started Dell Computers, you know, which is obviously a little bit more successful than Charles Stewart Shirts. So, you know, in a way, I sort of look back and think, I wish I'd done computers. Okay. Um, or Charles Dunstan started, you know, Carphone Warehouse in 1989, which is three years after me. And I sort of think, I wish I'd done mobile phones. Because I'd like to sort of, it's nice to have a business that, that you want a business that sort of grows and, and people love and, and, and it makes a difference. So mm. it wouldn't be in, I, I, it wouldn't be in clothes, but it would be in a product. It would be in a product that... Um, it would be in a product that I love, but I haven't really thought about, you know, the idea of starting another business now as well as this business yeah. is a very different question. Yeah. And I haven't, so I, ha I don't really know, because a lot of people come to me and they say, I want to start my own business, but what should I do? And it's very hard for me to say that because it has to come from, the, it has to come from your heart. You know, you've got to have, you've got to have a real passion for it. Mm. It's no good somebody saying, go and do this. You've got to really want to do it. And what are the young businesses you see that are maybe less than five years old and you think, I wish I'd have thought of that? Um, I love the businesses that just make everybody's life much easier. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, the, they're the, uh, the interrupters, really. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the online bankers. I mean, I find, you know, Revolut is just an incredible business. Although they're in a bit of hot water. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, they are. They are because they're, they're, they, are, they, yeah, they are in hot water. But from a customer point of view, they've yeah, made my life much yeah. easier. Um, you know, I think Airbnb is just a fantastic business. You know, it's just a fantastic... Uber is a fantastic business. Mm. You know, the idea of, you know, just... I mean, you know, the mobile, the mobile phone is, is the enabler for all this. And the mobile phone is just, I mean, you know, 
you know, will we own anything other than a mobile phone in a few years' time? Will we even wear any clothes? You know, you just sort of sit at home and, and your whole life works around your mobile phone. I mean, it's just, you know, incredible. But I think it, it, it's, those, it's those real interrupters yeah. that, that, that I, I just find fantastic. Okay. And what's your worst habit? My worst habit? Oh, God. Uh, my worst habit? I mean, I, I, I actually hate, um, I, I bite my nails. Pathetic. I mean, I, incredibly unoriginal. But I, I, I bite my nails, and I bite my toenails as well. Really? Really, no. really quite badly, yeah. You bite your toenails? Yeah, yeah, I bite my toenails. But how, have you got the flexibility to pull that off? Well, I did have the flexibility until quite recently. But actually, <laughs> this really annoying thing about getting older is I can't bite my toenails anymore. It, it's a sort of, um, so I have to, so I, now I just pick, I pick at my toenails. I mean, it's just awful. I can't okay. believe it. I better, not, I better not go on any further. It's just far too embarrassing. Um, what are you most proud of in your career? <laughs> I think I'm I, well. I'm most proud of of of, of, of the business. I, I feel slightly strange saying I'm proud of the business because it's a. I feel like it's you know it's not me. It, it, you know, businesses take on a life, they, they take on a life of their own. The, but the business is all about it's it, it's a it's about all the people in the business. But I love the fact that, you know, there are thirteen hundred people in the business who all are all working in this business. If they weren't working here, they'd probably be working somewhere else. Maybe they're working much better jobs. But, you know, they're all working here, and I hope they're 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 loving working here. I mean. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons why I wouldn't sell the business is that what I love most, I love it when, I love it when people who work here come up to me and people I don't and they just say, I just have to say this is the best job I've ever had. Or when customers come up and say, I just absolutely love your shirts. You know, I, I've only just found them and I can't believe I didn't find them 30 years ago. And it's that sort of, it, it's, making a, it's making a little difference to people's lives. Yeah. Which phrase or convention would you like to banish from the earth? What annoys you the most? The thing that really annoys, has always really annoyed me, is, is people who say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Which is that thing, it goes back to that thing of, you know, you, you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to make mistakes. You know, you've got to push, because mm. otherwise nothing changes. And, and I think there are some people who think, you know, everything's working fine, I'm not going to make any changes. And you, it becomes boring. Yeah. You know, and a lot of businesses, quite a lot of businesses work with that sort of mantra, really. They, they sort of, well, you know, everything's working fine, let's not change it, let's not push the boundary. And I think I, I, I have a real aversion. I have a, a real aversion to repetition, and I and I get bored quite easily. You know, if people aren't doing things, you know, pushing and, and making a difference, I, I, I think it just drives me up the wall. Okay, what's your biggest fear? Uh, my biggest fear. Um, well, just recently, actually, I, I think there's a. I hope we're at a tipping point on on on. On climate change, I'm just saying, again, this sounds, this is not very original, but, but uh, it suddenly feels like there's a lot more noise around, you know, there is a real, there is a real problem. Yeah. And I think people are suddenly getting to, getting to realise quite what the problem is. And, you know, in the past, it's been a bit of a debate where you get the sort of, you know, the, 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 the doom mongers and the, and the people who say it's not making any difference. And, but I think it's becoming so obvious now. Yeah. That that is really, really quite alarming because, you know, the other thing is 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 the pace of change always increases. So so as things start going wrong, you know, pretty much driven by technology, technology and population growth, really. So I think what starts as a slow thing and climate change has been a slow thing. It, it just gets faster and faster. And I, and I think the danger is is that in five, ten years time, well, people say in ten years time it's going to be too late. But I think that is that's pretty scary. Yeah, I think this is the year when it's really been. 
I yeah. mean, just in the last few weeks, the yeah. kind of climate protest. Yeah. Do you think government will actually change? Do you think business will actually change? Do you think people will want to change their habits? I think people will start to change their habits. It, 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 it's a, you know, there is such a thing as a tipping point. And I, and I, and I think it, 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 it's one of those things that could suddenly, could suddenly go. You know, it mm. suddenly becomes such a big deal that people actually do change their habits. And I think that moment, I hope that moment yeah. is, 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 is now. Is there a precedent for that? Is there something in your lifetime where you've seen everyone just decide in a, in, within a couple of years that they're going to change their ways and it's really been widespread? I think the use of mobile phones. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, people, people used to say that everyone would run their lives off a mobile phone. And I always said, oh, it's just crazy. It's ridiculous. You know, it's just not going to happen. But... That's happening at a hell of a pace now. Everything, mm. everything is on a mobile phone. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I went away at the weekend. I thought I'm not going to take my mobile phone, and I just couldn't do it. I just, I just, yeah. I said, I'm not going to take my mobile phone. I'm not going to. I'm just not going to do it. But I just couldn't. I couldn't not take it. Yeah. And I think that has become. That's been a pretty. That's been a pretty rapid shift. Yeah. Do you have a party trick? I was watching. It's funny you asked that because I was watching a. Um, my daughter was watching. Uh, a video on YouTube this this morning of of people's party, famous people's party tricks and the people can do some amazing things yeah and I can't okay <laughs> maybe I that's something do, to work on I, I I have a double jointed finger there okay not many people can do that I can't I mean is that you can't actually see what's special about that no it looks like you're bending your finger no will you try bending your finger at that at the right joint, angle oh, at wow. that joint rather than the top one there you see. Nobody can do it. This is thrilling listening, I'm sure. Yeah, no, this is, this is absolutely... <laughs> but it is. If I hold it in front it. of the microphone there. Everyone's trying Neither it. of you, nobody can do it. It is remarkable. You have to bend it at the first joint, so your top joint stays did you Did you teach yourself that, or was it... Well, I have tried it at parties, but actually people then, people very, very quickly go and talk to somebody else. So okay. it, I, I'm not sure I called it a trick, and I don't recommend it to well, other if, people. Well, if you don't want to speak to anyone, I suppose it's the perfect party <laughs> trick. Um, what's your most treasured possession? Do you have a, a, a Charles Stewart shirt from the first ever? I have a Charles Stewart shirt from the first series. Wow. Is that framed? And, or is that it just is, it is, it is sitting in pride of place in a cupboard that every so often I open the cupboard and I stroke it. Okay. <laughs> and the label is completely washed out. And that's quite, that's quite treasured, actually. Yeah. I used to get terribly sentimental. I used to keep everything. I, st- I had a beard when I was about 22 and I still got the beard and the jam jar. I can't bring myself to chuck it out. The beard? A beard, yeah. You shaved off your beard and kept it in a jar? I shaved the beard and kept it all. It's in a jam jar, That's yeah. kind of hoarding level. It is slightly hoarding. Wow. It is slightly, I, I, I did used to be a bit of a hoarder. <laughs> For about the first 20 years of my life, I didn't throw away a single tube of toothpaste. I've still got those as well. Really? I think they're going to be very valuable one day, but um, <laughs> I, I, I need to chuck them away. Well, that could be your next business, vintage <laughs> toothpaste. Vintage um, toothpaste. Is there a book that's influenced you more than any other? There is a great book, actually, that, I mean, it's got, it's got the most appalling title, which, I mean, absolutely appalling title, but it's not what the book's about. It's, 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 it's a book called The Richer Way, and it's by a guy called Julian Richer. Yeah. Julian Richer started Richer Sounds, who is quite a, a maverick entrepreneur. And The Richer Way is, is, is just, it, it, it's quite short, and it is a genius book about how to make your company a fantastic place to work. You know, I think so much of the economy, our economy is, is driven by small businesses. And I think if everybody read that book and made their companies fantastic places to work, not only would, you know, the people in this country be a much happier load of people, but the businesses would be much more successful. Mm. And I think it's just, he just does some just fantastically clever, unique yeah. things. Do you think happy workers are, are always better workers? I think happy workers are always better workers. 
Would you ever do a four-day week at Charles Turin? Yeah, I was reading about that the other day. The Wellcome Trust tried to do it. The Wellcome Trust tried to do it. But then they backed out. They, they should have done it. They backed out. Because if down. they'd have got, they've got 300, 400,000 employees. Yeah, I know. If they'd have managed to pull it if off. They'd, I know. I think it's a, and it's a similar thing Richard, what Richard Branson did is unlimited holiday. Mm. And people um, never use as much as they did before. And people never use as much. No. I, I sometimes one because I, I, you, you can have an unlimited holiday, but you have to have you have to get your 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 immediate boss to sign it off. Mm. So I think it becomes it sort of you know you have to go. How, how genuine week. is it? Do you know what I mean? It's sort of because if your immediate boss says, "Look, you can't do it because you've got a you've got a load to do." Right, it's never unlimited. But I think the idea is fantastic, and I, and and I, and I would and I would actually love to implement that. And that's the sort of thing that actually you know. Do I think that's a good idea in the business? Yes, I do. And, you know, do you mean unlimited holiday or four day week? I think possibly both. Yeah, because you both. would attract if you were the only kind of person in this space doing it, you'd attract the best people, presumably, because they'd say, "Well, I can work here for the same salary." But also, well, one of the things that happened at the Wellcome Trust is that people worried that they wouldn't be able to get their work done. Mm. So it wasn't a sort of universally loved thing within okay. the Wellcome Trust. Not everybody wanted to do it because they just felt they couldn't do their work in four days. I think you can work an hour later every night. And you've got four extra hours, yeah. and that's probably all right. Yeah, no one does that Friday no, afternoon. That's right. No, I'm mean, absolutely <laughs> right. Well, I think if you look, I mean, looking at productivity of people during the day, I mean, you know, people could improve their productivity a lot. Yeah. You know, people, you, people go on their phones a lot, which, you know, we don't stop people going on their phones, and I'm quite happy for people to go on their phones. But, you know, maybe if they had a day off, then they would go on no. their phones less, and they do, they do more work in four days, and they, you know, I mean, yeah. I... I think it's a great idea. I think if we had a six-day week, we'd do the same amount of work as a five-day week, probably. But there's that rule about... Maybe that's the new idea. I could do a seven-day week. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have no one here at all. Um, and do you have a personal motto before we go? Do I have a personal motto? My personal motto... I think you need to always remember the important things in life. You know, people get, people get uh, hung up about things that really aren't important. What are the important things? I, I'd say the important things are family and friends. I think health is important. But family and friends, you know, it's a sort of, you know, a lot of people fall out with their families. Yeah. It's quite strange. And people fall out with friends as well. And you've just got to, you've got to not do that because that's never going to lead to, you're not going to be a happier person. No, definitely true. And finally, before we go, I've got to ask you whether you still do a little dance around the room when you get a new check or a more money. <laughs> Actually, we're almost getting to the point where we get so few checks because people don't pay for it. I, I, might, I might reintroduce it, actually. Yeah, you should. It's quite a good idea. We'll have a, a Friday afternoon dance-off, maybe. We'll have a, a Friday afternoon dance-off. <laughs> okay. Yeah, very good idea. Nick, thanks very much for joining us. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram if you're so inclined, at the Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.